I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about John of Damascus with Andrew Louth, who is Emeritus Professor of Patristic and Byzantine Studies at Durham University. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for being here. We're going to be talking about John of Damascus, who we've just been looking at in the podcast. Can you remind listeners who he was, when did he live, that sort of thing? He's born in the, probably almost certainly in the third quarter of the 7th century. So between 650, 675, we're not at all sure. And he lived the first part of his life in, in Damascus, which is why he's called John of Damascus. Um, his, his family had been a family that had been in charge of the fiscal administration um, in Damascus under all the regimes of the 7th century. Um, Byzantium, the Persians, then Byzantium again, then the Arabs. Um, they managed to sort of stay there. And it's quite likely that John of Damascus went into the fiscal administration under his father towards the end of the 7th century. And then beginning of the 8th century, it looks as if the, the, the caliph decided that the administration was going to become much more um, uh, Islamic. And uh, it, look, it looks as if it was then that John Damascus left Damascus and went down to Jerusalem, where he became a monk, where he lived the rest of his life. Most of his writings, I think, come from this, this period when he was a monk, in, probably in Jerusalem. The tradition is that he was at the, the monastery of Masava, but it's a late tradition, and I don't think anybody believes it any longer. And as a monk, he would have been exposed, obviously, to a great deal of patristic literature. Yeah. But also, he knows something about pagan literature, philosophical literature. He refers to them yes. sometimes. He, he, he refers to pagan literature in very general terms. Those outside, it is. He hardly ever mentions anybody in particular. He mentioned Aristotle once, I think. Um, um, but, um, but he... His... His knowledge of, of, of classical literature or pagan literature would have been from his education. He's clearly very well educated because he can write very well. Uh, he writes much, much more clearly, say, than, than, than Maximus. And actually, there's an article by Mango which points out that the great writers of the end of the 7th, beginning of the 8th century, all come from Damascus, which was, had been for centuries a great centre of Hellenistic culture and still continued, I think, as a, as a, as a place where... A really good education was available, probably better than in Constantinople. Oh, really? Hmm. And so we could also put this in the context of more general uh, Syrian culture, so, yeah. which also produced theological literature yes, and yes. philosophical literature in Syriac. Whether John knew Syriac is not at all clear. He almost certainly knew Arabic, but um, he certainly he, he came from a Greek-speaking family mm-hmm. in Damascus. And they may, may not necessarily have known Syriac. And would you say that he as it were, holds the pagan thinkers at arm's length? Or is he deliberately trying to integrate them into Christian theology? I don't think he's deliberately doing anything. <laughs> I think he's, he's, he's so much part of a tradition that when we talk about the, the influence of pagan philosophy on him, his, the influence, say, of Aristotle, Porphyry, whoever, I think almost invariably it's coming through somebody else. I don't think there's much evidence. It possibly, possibly parts of the di- dialectica. 
he put this together from um, Porphyry or, or, or sixth century Aristotelian sources. But um, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not. I, I think he's he's dealing with a world where all this has already been assimilated into into Christian education. And that means that he doesn't seem to have much hesitation in using concepts and terminology that we might associate with pagan philosophy mm -hmm. in the context of, say, talking about Christology or the Trinity. So that a lot of this material is in John, but also before John is shot through with mm. um, what, what someone like me would consider to be technical yeah. uh, terminology from Aristotelianism, mm. like say, usia, which means substance, yeah. or hypostasis, which means something like existence. Yeah. Now, that I think is all, in a sense, that has all been all become part of the Christian tradition, really in the sixth century, and and uh, and to some extent in the seventh century. I think Maximus is also largely drawing on a tradition that he he doesn't regard as being particularly pagan. Um, it's it's the way Christians have been thinking for at least hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, and can you give us uh, maybe an example of how this works in practice? So, how would he use? Um philosophical or what someone might consider to be philosophical terminology in a theological context? There's a great deal of interest in defining um, how do you put it? In defining individuality. Um, the, the, the context of all of this is, is, is um, the theology of the Trinity and the theology of and Christology. Because the, you know, by, by the sixth century, the the standard language is that, 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 that God consists of three hypostases um, and one uzia, and Christ consists of two feces and one hypostasis or, um, or, or prosopon. And so, what do these words mean? So we have uzia, prosopon, and phusis. Uzia means being, um, often translated as substance. But I think I think mm, I. It, I think it's more helpful to use being because it's, it's vaguer and I don't think it is particularly clearly defined. Hypostasis is a term which I don't think has got any real background in pagan thought in the way that Christians use it. Um, it seems to, it's, it's more or less the equivalent of Uzia, but it's a different word. And I think that, 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 that Basil, particularly in the, and other Capitalists, his brother basically, not Peregrinosiensis, in the, in the fourth century, it was, a, you wanted to be able to talk about the way in which God is in two different ways. The way he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the way he is as God. And Basil more or less suggests, well, we'll use Uzziah for the oneness of God, and we'll use hypostasis for the threeness of God. So there are three persons or hypostases, one divine being. Um, and then that language is, 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 is used in at Chalcedon in relation to Christo in, in relation to Christology. There are two kinds of being in Christ, or two feces, two natures. There's a divine one and a human one, but they are united in a single hypostasis. Mm -hmm. um, and the next century, the sixth century, putting it rather simply, but oversimplifying a bit, but the sixth century sp has a, spends a great deal of time trying to work out what this really means. I mean, the terminology, the councils introduce terminology, but they don't define it. And the, def the definition of what you mean by uzea, what you mean by thesis, so what you mean by being, what you mean by nature, you what you mean by hypostasis or person. This really belongs to the, to, to the sixth century. Um, 
and in in the context of in the context of real division in the church as to whether this language is satisfactory or not. And would you say that John is an innovative figure in this tradition? No. So, and he's not trying to be innovative. Of he's course. not trying to be. He isn't. I don't think. Um, he's 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 a great clarifier. Um, I think that if you read his um, dialectica, you would come away with a very clear sense of what what, what kind of thing he means by hypothesis, museum, thesis, and so on. Mm. But he's he's not. It's not new. Um, it's all taken from other people, mm-hmm. um, and it's what he reckon- And he doesn't want it to be new. Um, where he does have ideas that are perhaps well, they're new in a way, is one of the other topics that came up in the in 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 in, in the seventh century uh, was the the heresies of what was called monothelitism, monenergism, which is a kind of compromise between those who accept a Chalcedon and those who reject a Chalcedon, the local monophysites, and the compromise of we agree with Chalcedon. There's one person. There are two natures. But there's only one activity or one will. Right, so monothelitism means one will. Yes, and, and monothelitism. Yes, one, one activity. Ener- and monoenergetism yeah. means one energy. One activity, really. Or one yeah. activity. Yeah. Um, and um, Ma- Maximus spends a great deal of time trying to sort this out. And I think Maximus's thought is largely tentative. I mean, he's, he's created a problem for himself by insisting on two wills because he, he wants a Christ with two wills which doesn't destroy his unity. Mm-hmm. Um, and but also with the two wills that are actually genuine, he, he's not he's not idea, he's not happy with the idea that the human will is simply quiescent, which I think what most of the monotheists thought. I don't think I don't think they thought he didn't have a human will, but the human will was simply quiescent. Just doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. It just just follows the, the Whereas divine. Whereas Maximus will. wants to say Christ has two wills, divine and human, yes. and they just agree about everything. And they they do agree, but they come into agreement. The will actually, the human will. Well, in the in the agony in the garden, when Christ says, "Not my will, but your will be done," there is an engagement between Christ's human will and Christ's divine will, because the Father's will is His divine will. And what's John's position on this particular issue? Well, the thing is about John is that John 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 goes a step further. He says that that there are two different two different wills, two distinct wills, divine and human, but that the the product of the will, what you will, the theliton, what you will, is one. In case of Christ, and that that sort of clarification is no more than that. I think is found in John in a way that you don't find in, in Maximus. I see. So Christ wills to walk on water, and that is an example of the divine will and the human will agreeing. Yes, because to walk on water, but the walking on water is one thing. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, in fact, that, that, that's one of the the standard examples, um, and it really goes back to Severus of Antioch, the, the great opponent of Chalcedon. In the fourth, um, in the fifth, sixth century, who who objected to this idea that Christ does human things and he does divine things, and severest example. What about the walking on the water? It can't be divine because it's walking. It can't be human because it's walking on the water. So what is it? It must be a divine human activity. Right now, that's picked up by the Orthodox eventually, um, and they they interpret it as, as showing how that there are the, the the divine and the human are. Genuinely authentic because it is it is walking and it is on water, but it's a single activity, and and I think uh, with John of Damascus that is it's only a tiny clarification, but this notion that there are two thelemata, two wills in Christ, but only one theliton, mm-hmm. only one one object of will. Something I uh, personally find really exciting and fascinating about John of Damascus is something you've already mentioned, which is that he lives 
in Damascus and then he's in Jerusalem. Yeah. And these are uh, places in the Islamic empire yes. during his life. And so in a way he's not, li- I mean, in, in some sense, he's not a Byzantine thinker, right? Because he doesn't live in the yep. Byzantine empire. In another sense, he obviously is. Yes. He's a Christian theologian who writes mm-hmm. in Greek. Um, what was his attitude towards Islam? And in fact, how much did he really understand and know about Islam? Was he interested in it? Was he curious? Or does he just kind of fob them off with superficial criticisms? I think there's a lot of disagreement over this. And, and, and the disagreement is connected with um, partly questions of what, what we can really ascribe to John. I'm pretty certain that the that the the tenth, sorry, the hundredth heresy in on, on heresies, which deals with Islam, I'm pretty sure that is by John of Damascus. But there's another work called the Dialogue between a Saracen and a Christian, and this is said to be Apophonies to Johanna Damascino, so which means which means from the voice of, yeah. and it's, actually Apophonies is is quite regularly used um, in in this sort of period to mean from the teaching of, though not necessarily printed by the teacher. Yeah, you see it a lot with late antique uh, commentaries on That's Aristotle. Right. Yeah. It will say from the mouth of, or from the yeah. voice of Ammonius That's to right. mean that it's his commentary, but it was written down by his students. Yeah, and I suspect that's quite like... The other question is, what was Islam like in the end of the 7th, beginning of the 8th century? Like, was it a thing called the Quran? Is there the, the kind of, the, the body of doctrine that exists now? Was it, just, was it, was it fully fashioned by then? Now, I mean, according to the traditional Islam, the whole of the of the revelation that's contained in the Quran was delivered to Muhammad, and by the time Muhammad died, it was finished. And it's all there, complete. But my, my impression is that, that quite a lot of more recent scholarship on Islam suggests that there was a time when the, the various surah of the, of, of, the, of the Quran existed independently and were brought together over a period of time, not all the beginning of the 7th century. But either way, John definitely knows this text or body of text because he cites specific passages. Yeah. But the interesting thing about John is that John knows a little bit of it. And it could be, I mean, he knows he knows three surah and he knows another surah which we don't know about. Though the contents of it you can find in other parts of the Quran. It's, I think it's called the, uh, it's the surah of the camel. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, that way, I, I think that fits with, that would fit with the idea that that Islam took time to consolidate, and that so so um, John Damascus knows Islam in an inchoate state. Um, I mean that's one possible. It seems to me very very plausible. Um, if that's the case, then what? Well, he's quite clear that he's quite clear that Islam is wrong. Um, he regards it as the last and the most dire heresy, and after that, there's only Antichrist to come, and mm-hmm. um, the. the I mean, I think we should take very, very seriously the very ap- apocalyptic opening of um, On Heresy 100. I, mean, it, I, I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's just um, literary. I think yeah, he says it. they're harbingers of the Antichrist. That's right. Literally. Yeah. yeah, he says. I mean, that's what he means. But on the other hand, I think he's very clear about what Muslims say about Christians and how Christians can respond to Muslims. The first. And the main criticism that he wants to, to respond to um, is that Christians are associators, that they associate someone with God who isn't God. And that is genuinely Islamic, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the standard accusations that they even make against each other in yes, theological yes. disputes, the shirk, which is yeah. polytheism, yes. basically. But you see, and he's quite clear that's what they, he, he responds robustly by saying, no, we are not um, associators, but you are mutilators <laughs> because you mutilate the Godhead. Um, and his way into this is by saying that God has, has a word and a spirit. And I think, and the Quran says this too. Mm-hmm. And his question is, what about this word and spirit? Are they created or are they uncreated? And certainly in the, 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 the dialogue with the Saracen, there's a brilliant Saracen and the Christian, the Christian says to the Saracen, you're very careful, because if you say that the word and the spirit are created, you will be in deep trouble with your own mm-hmm. um, Muslims. And I think all this fits into the, uh, into what I, the, the early sort of Mutazilim discussions. Yeah, the, um, there's this... Uh big debate that happens after John's period uh, in the ninth century, really, about whether the Quran is created. And since the Quran is the word of God, that effectively is a question about whether God's word is eternal with God, which is the side of the debate that eventually wins out, or whether the word is created. Um, And there actually has been some uh, discussion in secondary literature about the extent to which that debate has uh, debate about the Trinity mm. as a kind of uh, preparatory mm. stage uh, or an influence. Mm. I mean, in, in that respect, John knows what he's talking about, and it looks as if he's, he knows he knows he knows enough about Islam to know where it differs from Christianity and where they criticize Christians. For the re- for the rest of it, a lot of it is a lot of the things he says about Islam and about Muhammad are um, how can I put it um, there. Um, impolite very impolite i mean they, they are they 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 he attacks and he attacks very vigorously but of course this this was this was standard form for re- for rhetoric in 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 cl- even classical times and in late antique times you know if you if you criticize you don't just sort of say they're wrong but you say that they are liars and they are fools and mm. so on. i mean that's standard form and i think one shouldn't be surprised that john takes this line and, and get very upset about it because if he's as if he has nothing to say other than, than to um, vilify them. That's not true. He, he's got, he, he knows very clearly what the, the issues are. The other interesting thing about this is that I argue in my book that if you look at the presentation of the Trinity in his Orthodox faith, he goes back to Gregory of Nyssa, to his catechetical oration, and uses that as the template. Now, in Gregory of Nyssa, the template is, there is God, the Father, who has a word and has a spirit and develops the doctrine of Trinity out of this. And I think that, that, that it cannot, but I think it must be the case that he chooses to go back three centuries to use a rather primitive form of truly orthodox Christianity written by a genuine father. Because again, it, it, it presents Christians with a way of presenting the Trinity, which is going to be less easy for the Muslims to reject, mm. because it uses the sort of terminology they're familiar with. It's less technical and complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that brings us to... a. Uh, Another question that I wanted to ask you, which is precisely this concept of orthodoxy. Mm. I mean, obviously, the Muslims are not orthodox Christians, but there's also a lot of debate going on within Christianity. We've already talked about Christology. Mm. We've talked about the Trinity. There's also iconoclasm. Mm. And something we've discussed already on the podcast is that he vigorously attacks iconoclasm Mm. and defends the icons. So when he does these things... He obviously historically he was helping to form what becomes orthodox belief mm-hmm. um, in the Byzantine Eastern mm-hmm. uh, Church. 
what would he have thought of himself as doing? And is he saying, here is exactly the list of beliefs that you should adopt, or maybe even here are exactly the forms of words you should utter and you shouldn't say anything else? So is it like a catechism, in other words? Or is it more like he's trying to police the boundaries of acceptable belief while leaving a lot of room inside those boundaries for freedom of thought and debate? It's a, it's a bit between those. With the, with the, the triumph of Islam in the uh, Middle East and, and the, the collapse of the Byzantine Empire, it meant that all Christians were on a level playing field. There was no favoured imperial party as had been the case really since Constantine. Um, and that meant that, that, um, that Christians had to be very, both very clear about what it was that they thought and be clear why the others were wrong, which they needed to argue. And that's why I think, for instance, the, 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 one of John's works is called The Electric. It's a textbook of logic, helping you to define the terms you use and also, I think, helping you to, 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 to argue properly and convincingly. And it seems to me that this, there's a lot of evidence that in the, in the seventh century, there was a great deal of argument um, um, uh, between different groups because Islam t- had taken away a dominant group that could just simply rely on persecution, as well, they argued as well. But, you know, behind, behind the argument, there was an iron fist mm-hmm. uh, with, say, with, with Justinian, but in the seventh century, no longer. And I think this means that people have then to be very big, define and be clear about what it is they, 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 they believe and clear about what is wrong with those who believe otherwise. And this would include other Christians like the Monophysites, or to, to, to use the term that the Orthodox use of them, the Monophysites, those who don't accept Chalcedon, the Nestorians, those um, who don't accept, uh, don't accept Ephesus. Uh, and then, but it would also include, there, you begin to get arguments again for the first time for a long time against Manichees, because with the, with the, I mean, the seventh century changes the geography, and so so where where's the Byzantine Empire ended with the Tigris Euphrates? This Islamic Empire stretches to India, and includes a whole range of things that have been sort of pushed out of the empire, like the Nestorians, like the Manichees, and so on. Also, the Jews become um, important again because again they are a people of the book. They are just as protected as Christians, whereas as in, in the Christian empire, they were very much not equal to Christians. And so uh, there's a great deal of debate in the, in, in, in the seventh century. We only know the orthodox side of it, but I'm pretty sure that, there was, that this was only just this one side. It's just because of history that we have this. So what's going on, I think, is that John of Damascus, in fact, kind of, Sitting in the shadow of the of the mosque that had been built on the, the Temple Mount, knowing perfectly well who's who's politically in charge, is clear. It wants to define who the Orthodox are. And this is it's about this time that people start to use Orthodox as a kind of self-defining term. As a word, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's always existed, but as a way of expressing one's identity, to say that one is Orthodox, I think belongs to around this time. Um, so actually, so I guess what you're saying is that it's really more about defining a group yes. around a set of beliefs yeah. rather than uh, a kind of thought police project where he's telling you, do say this, don't mm. say this. He's more saying, here's what we think and here's why we think it. Yeah. And he's giving you arguments yeah. against the other mm. uh, communities mm. in this very multicultural yeah. context that he finds himself That's right. in. I mean, and I think, I think it's right to say that orthodoxy is a matter of you know, kind of working out what the boundaries are. Though I'm not sure how much freedom there was within, in, within this. And as far as um, John's role in 
the later Orthodox tradition goes, something that you point out in your book, which I, I actually found somewhat surprising, is that John doesn't seem to have been very influential in the generations after his death. Certainly his works against iconoclasm would have been works that even to possess would be um, put you in very great danger of your life um, until iconoclasm was well over. Iconoclasm isn't, isn't well over until a century after John's death. The fact that he wrote these would mean that any, any of his other writings would be um, rather dubious things until iconoclasm was well over. One thing that might disturb some readers of John is that his works are not original mm. <laughs> in a different sense than the one we mentioned earlier. We said he's not trying to be innovative, yeah. he's adhering to a theological tradition, but he does more than that. He actually writes works that are just uh, kind of cut and paste uh, texts where he brings together lots of different sources, lists them with or without commentary. Mm. And this is actually a, an interesting feature of Byzantine thought that I'm going to go on to discuss. So mm. I, I was just wondering what you thought about this. Do you, how do you think one should go about reading a text which is cobbled together from other texts? Um, there's a remark by Lionel Wickham, um, a, a great patristic scholar, uh, who says that patristic scholarship aspired after the genre of the Florilegium and in John of Damascus met it, found, found, its, get, found its goal or something like that. <laughs> and a Florilegium is a yeah. A Florilegium is a collection. Yeah. Now, Bot Bot um, John of Damascus does prepare proper Florilegia. Uh, all of the works against um, the iconoclasts either, either morph into um, a Florilegium, as was the first, or contain an actual list of quotations at the end in support of your case. And the Florilegia on John's Florilegia on, on iconoclasm are enormously influential. They get to the West very quickly. There's a manuscript that can be dated in the, about the 780s, I think it is, um, which has got a Florilegium, which is clearly very, very, very indebted to, to, to John. That's you know, within 20 years of his death. His polemical works which are the least well-known of his works, mostly on Christology, but there's also one against Manichaeism. Um, his polemical works use quotations from the Fathers because that was the way you argued, but they're not really Florilegia. Uh, there's a real argument going on, and John is in command of this argument. On the Orthodox faith is intended to be an, sort of an epitome of Orthodox doctrine, and on the whole, he does this by taking some, some Orthodox source, um, Paris and for, for the Trinity, he takes Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, he uses a lot of John, he loves um, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, lots of quotations from him. Um, Maximus for um, Christology and the Will. Um, um, Nemesius Vimessa, he uses a very great deal for general information about everything. Nemesius um, Vimessa wrote a, a, a book called on, on, on Human Nature, which is an, an, an elaborate description of human nature, again, drawn from, from other sources, about which he's very clear, he, he cites them, um, which, was, which was used by um, later Greeks um, as, as a kind of a summary of modern science, what we know about the human being, how it works, how the humans operate, and what sort of stuff. So is John just thinking that he needs to put this information together in a useful way to make it available to yes, people? Yes, I think so, yes, I think so. So it's really, a, it's a, almost like a pedagogical yeah. project. The other thing that I should mention, because it never isn't mentioned, and I think he's probably in some ways the most important thing about John Ajaskas, he's also a poet. 
and he wrote an enormous amount of liturgical poetry. I mean, he's, he's attributed, he became so famous as a poet within the Byzantine tradition that he's that enormous amount of stuff is attributed to him, Italy isn't by him. But he he's one of the great writers of canons. And this is a form of monastic literature. It's a, it's a song which accompanies the ode that are sung at Matins. And um, I mean, any Orthodox Christian, well, most Orthodox Christians will know by heart the Easter canon. Um, and what this is also composed from um, patristic sources. But what he does is he, he, he will take phrases from particularly Gregory of Nazianzus and sometimes from other people and put them all together. Um, and you get it, it, it isn't that you don't know it's a patchwork because it fits together so nicely. But, but it, it, what he's done is, is take these prose sermons and turn them into songs. And so that the Orthodox faith, so to speak, can be sung and therefore remembered. And I think in some ways that's, that's, that is as important as um, his only Orthodox faith, but only within the Byzantine world. This doesn't translate into the Latin. Well, it's not entirely true. Some, some of his um, 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 trapara, his verses, do get through into Latin, but only a very small number. Okay, well, actually, um, that gives us a great transition to the next episode, which is going to be about compilations and works of that kind in the Byzantine tradition. Um, for now, I thank Good. Andrew Love very much for coming well, on the show. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. And please join me next time here on the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Oh,